Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick Orvis, and I'm here this week with C. Meeks Meeker. Hi. Meeks is the keeper for our Brindlewood Bay campaign, which is airing right now. Longtime listeners will also know them from their stint as the groundskeeper for our phenomenal creepy game of Bluebeard's Bride last season. They're an immensely talented playwright, dramaturg, and teacher, and we're going to talk a little bit about theater, tabletop games, horror, and the mysteries they're running for us right now. Thanks so much for joining us, Meeks. You've certainly been giving us a lot of your time and attention with this long Brindlewood Bay arc, and we really appreciate it. I'm very excited to be back. It's a lot of fun. So I want to start just diving in uh, for folks who might not know your background in theater uh, to talk about your work as a playwright and what brought you into playwriting and what your journey has been like. Yeah, um, that's a <laughs> sure. Uh, I know it's yeah. a small, a small, <laughs> quick question. <laughs> um, I actually didn't start out writing plays. I started writing out fiction, um, and I only, I only worked in in theater. In, in college, I worked in theater uh, as a stage manager and as a director. Um, in fact, I tried to get into playwriting at some point in my senior year, and they were like, "You don't have the prerequisites for this, so you can't do that." <laughs> so yeah, so I didn't actually end up doing um, playwriting until I moved to Seattle. Um, and then uh, it was mostly a means to an end because I thought I was just going to be, I just wanted to be a director. And I thought that's, that was like, that was going to be it for me was to be a director. Um, and uh, as it turns out, I'm too much of a control freak. Uh, and so, uh, which I'm sure shocks everybody uh, that you hear from game masters all the time. Uh, but <laughs> I was, I was, I was trying to direct something for a festival that's called Battle of the Bards. Um, and this might still happen in Seattle. It was, it was a, with a small company called Ghostlight Theatricals. And they basically were like, uh, you know, we just want you to direct an original piece um, from a playwright in town. And it just needs to be an adaptation of any classical work. And I was working with a playwright uh, who I didn't, uh, who whose work was fine, but like, and we were, we had been buddies in um, uh, college. And we decided that we wanted to write something that was about the um, apocalypse because I didn't really want to do an adaptation one-to-one. And I love this this person so much, but I I found myself being like, I just want to write this. Like I've come up with all these ideas for it. And like, at this point, I'm just commissioning her. So I should just write it. Um, and so I did because I'm too much of a control freak. And, and I tried, we tried to like continue to collaborate on it, but it just wasn't working. And so that was like the first time I actually ended up writing a play. And then I've since then just like continued on and and mostly only written plays, although I sometimes write other things. Um, so yeah, uh, it's been sort of a weird thing. Um, and then I went to the University of of Iowa to get my MFA, which took a uh, which I didn't do for for many years. So like I don't know, I've had sort of a roundabout. I feel like an an old an old person when I'm talking about grad school because I went to it much older than a lot of other people do. Um, not that I'm ancient. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 37, but it's just like, it's that weird thing where, because most of, you know, most of my, um, colleagues in, in grad school were in their, uh, late twenties, um, or mid twenties. I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm old by comparison. So anyway, that was my history with, with playwriting. Yeah. I, this is a tangent, but I was going to say, I can feel that as somebody who my first day in grad school was hearing somebody talk about, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about continuing on to a doctorate after this, but I don't know if I want to spend all of my 20s uh, like in school. And ma I made direct eye contact with my friend who was also starting the same day. Both of us would be turning 30 before we finished the master's program. And we were like, cool, 
Great. <laughs> that's what that's what this is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but I but this this uh, apocalypse play you're describing kind of dovetails nicely with uh, what I was going to ask about next, which is pertinent to Brindlewood Bay. Uh, several of your plays uh, involve horror or horror elements. I'm thinking particularly. Uh, well, I guess this is maybe not horror exactly in the in the strict sense of the term, but I was reading Ghosts in the Graveyard earlier today, which is a sort of Scooby Doo riff and i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what draws you to horror and what sort of horror you like to write yeah i am i i mean i i've been into horror since i was a kid um it was actually like one of those things that like you don't know why you're into something until uh until much later uh and it's not until much later that i realized like the huge connection that a lot of queer people have to horror and like seeing themselves as the other and and seeing themselves sort of represented, even if badly or poorly for the first time, there's actually this really great collection that just came out this October called um, It Came From the Closet, which is a bunch of queer writers writing essays about their experience with specific horror films. And it's it's amazing. Um, I just I just finished it uh, because I've had a hellish semester. So I but I prioritized finishing that book. Um, <laughs> and it was it was this thing where it's like, for me, horror has always been this um has always just been a very deep felt connection as a way to tell story uh, and as a way to experience the world because everything is so terrifying, especially when you feel like you're you're not like everybody else. Like everything is already feels very heightened and and potentially traumatic. Um, and so my work tends to uh, tends to exist in sort of both realms where like I, I really enjoy the potentially traumatic, but I also like doing it at that performance volume where it's also sort of a um, silly thing because for me, it's the, it's the mixture of, of the horror and the funny that... Um, um, that really works for me. And Ghost in the Graveyard is is one of my more recent um, plays, like very recent, like I finished it this year, um, which is uh, is specifically also like dealing with the things that I think that horror deals with best, which is grief and how we sort of process or don't process um, uh, our traumas. <laughs> um, uh, but how we all just sort of want family, I guess, in the end, if we have to. There, yes. I was well. I was going to say not just grief and trauma, but also generational grief and trauma, which I think is a really interesting thing to think about. As you know, as as we live through this pandemic, as we kind of in the United States, we grapple with the legacies of colonialism and slavery and uh, all of that. Um, it, yeah, it's it's interesting to dig into the horror that is sort of passed down and papered over and avoided through different year, years and generations of people. Well, and specifically, yeah, I mean, I, 100%. And specifically for me, like one of the things that I know is like a, is a very big touchstone in my work um, is, is this idea of lineage and how lineage mm. sort of, um, it changes in depending on on the play. Like it's not always the same thing, but it's almost always like trying to figure out how I, how how a character got from this past place to here and specifically how that sort of traced through family and ghost in the graveyard in particular is me trying to figure figure that one out because this uh this past year my father passed away and so it was this thing too where like that play was so much about like my god 
I mean, I, I have very complicated feelings about my father. I loved him very much, but also like he was a boomer and very, very problematic. And I was like, my God, how can we like reckon with these two things? How can we reckon with like this, like the problems that these people have like left us to deal with and not very well um, while we're also trying to fix ourselves. And it's just, I think that's what horror does really well is it takes those sort of complex ideas and is able to synthesize them in a more more interesting way than just like, well, let me just tell you about how terrible my relationship was at, at times with my father. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just not as much fun to watch versus like, here's some Scooby-Doo stuff. Um, but also there are ghosts. Mm? 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 Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something so delight. Well, delightful is not always the right word, but um, good horror really um it it can bring those kinds of questions to the forefront, I think, both sort of metaphorically, but also just by putting people in those sort of positions of extremis. Not something I think we do enough in the American theater, TM, um, <laughs> with our, our preference for living rooms and, uh, well, I guess, which can be a site of horror, but, you know, with our preference for sort of realism and naturalism yes that's a long-running theme of this podcast is the desire for more genre theater which is is a is a uh, a desire that i share and also one that i like to have done in my work i got so excited to, today so i'm i'm uh, i'm i teach too and so i was teaching uh, today is a workshop of one of my students plays and she wrote this mostly realistic play that was about something that happened in china this is a chinese student um, and, and with COVID restrictions, but there was also a monster in it, like quite literally a monster. And it was mostly realism within this monster. And one of her questions to the class was just like, I mean, I, I feel like it doesn't make any sense to have this monster in the play. And I was like, completely disagree. <laughs> like, and I just like, like wouldn't let any of the other students, all of my students thought it perfectly made sense. But like, I was just like, I was like, before anybody else tries to like, tell her to take this monster out of the play, this monster needs to stay in this play. This monster needs to be a part of this play because otherwise this is a very tragic story <laughs> that is just <laughs> trauma, 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 trauma that uh, we don't necessarily want to sit through. But if you put a monster in it, we still are going to have a hard time sitting through it because it's very sad, but hey, there's a monster in it. And that can be, that can help us, I think, alleviate some of this stress. Yeah, it can help us kind of, yeah, kind of deal with it in a in a way that is a, approachable, I think I think is the word I want to use. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask about um so in addition to uh GMing for us, you also have recently launched your own podcast uh with Margot Connolly. Uh Don't Podcast Dead Inside, which I was listening to earlier and is making me want to rewatch The Walking Dead. Which is, you know, I, I never, I was one of the people you talk about in the first episode where like I watched it for a couple of years and then burned out somewhere around season five, I think. I don't remember exactly where, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work on that and your relationship with that show. <laughs> Um, Margot Connolly is a fellow playwright. Uh, she and I went to Iowa together. Um, we are closer in age than the aforementioned, <laughs> uh, than the aforementioned. Um, and, uh, during the pandemic, Margot and I would text about the walking dead because I really wanted her to get past this place that she stopped watching the walking dead. Um, and every single time we would text about it, I'm not joking when I say that she would text me, um, 
20 text messages back to back to back. And they were all like chunky paragraphs, but they would just be back to back to back reactions to the episode. And, um, and this happened all throughout the pandemic, but once she got to a certain place, she would just restart and she wouldn't go past it. And it was really pissing me off because there's a certain, there's a certain place in, um, in Walking Dead where, uh, Angela Kang takes over. This has happened since season nine. So it's a bit of a ways away, but Angela Kang has been on the show since season one or two, um, and is amazing. And like, she takes over and it becomes even better. And there's all of these fun things. So I basically, this was me trying to trick Margot into watching the whole thing. I was like, what if we started uh, a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and she got so excited and then she immediately got really scared about doing it. So I've been sort of like, it's just been this back and forth, but, but now, but now she's really into it. So it works out really well, but uh, it's a very, it's really fun for us. I don't know. Like we are, we are really hopeful that like, maybe we'll get like 10 more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, I have to say, I really I, I'm going to subscribe because you two have a delightful kind of rapport and uh, ease with one another. Um, and it was just like you're, you're both so deeply attentive to the storytelling and the like, you know, world building and cinematography of the show. I I have only watched. It's not a show that I watched obsessively. So, you know, like I I have only watched a given episode once, but your uh, like discussions of them bring them back to mind extremely clearly. Um, and there and there and there's a lot more uh, a lot more thirst in the podcast than I expected, at least in the episodes I've listened to uh, so far, which is a delight. Uh, I bring the thirst. Um, I am like, so I mean, these are not unattractive people that they cast on this show, Nick. Like, no, they, absolutely. They, they are some very attractive motherfuckers. And um, I think that attention needs to be paid always and respect of of how hot these Hollywood people are, who are obviously Hollywood people, but look so Southern and so wonderful, <laughs> despite being from Britain and other places. Um, I was going to say, despite a surprisingly large number of them being British, which you do discuss on the show and has always weirded me out. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's, I, I mean, I hope it's fun. I also like it. So for like, for me personally, like zombies have been, are, are one of my favorite monster tropes period. Um, I call them the cauliflower of the genre because they will literally soak up any flavor you put next to them. Like famously, like get out for instance, uh, mm -hmm. uh Jordan Peele's film. It is a zombie film, right? Like it is absolutely a zombie film because what it's actually like touching on is the is the very original idea of zombie, which was a, a Haitian story that people were telling about how um, it, to become a zombie is to be hollowed out and be controlled by your white masters. Like that's literally like the, the beginning of, of zombies. So if you look at Get Out, it is it is also a zombie film. But then you have something with Girl with All the Gifts, um, which is very different and is also kind of taking to task this idea of lineage and who gets to be in control of what this is, because it's this little girl who ends up taking control and telling all of these uh, grownups that they actually don't get to decide if she lives or dies. She's now in control of the world and you all get to live in her existence now so um i love the zombie and specifically uh walking dead what is so great about it is is that what we're actually watching has nothing to do with the zombies because the biggest idea of that show is that the zombies are not the biggest threat the biggest threat is other people hell is actually other people and that is what we're actually watching and yeah. i can attest after this this pandemic if it's not the last six six years like yeah hell is definitely other people um uh, bring on the zombie apocalypse man like hell is other people <laughs> yeah uh this is 
not turning on a dime, I think, actually, especially because another play of yours I was reading was You Must Wear a Hat, which is which is apocalypse themed. But I was going to ask, are there other genres besides uh, horror that you find yourself particularly drawn to or other themes or ideas that you like to play with as a writer? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that for me, um, I so you must wear a hat is uh, is is very much about the world being over and still wanting wanting to find that connection and that and that um, and not being able to find it when you really really want to, but hoping that through those menial tasks you might be able to um, mm-hmm. uh, with two people who are making hats on the Great Barrier Reef. Other things that I'm sort of attracted to, I think, just really have to do with um, what it means to build community and and uh, and connection. I would say that most, if not all of my plays are sort of, are sort of dealing with that in some way, shape or form. Um, uh, but yeah, it's all, almost all of them deal with the end of the world in some capacity, I will say. Like, <laughs> like it is, it is, it is funny to me to think about, like somebody was saying, you know, we all write the same plays over and over again. And I do think that's true to an extent, but I hope that they look a little bit different each time <laughs> so that you don't feel like you're seeing the exact same story. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, well, and there's so many ends of the world, you know? um personal and now i'm 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 riffing nakedly on nk jemison now but like you know there there are tiny and enormous apocalypses going on all the time uh from the you know from the kind of global climatic to the personal you know loss of a loved one um having read your work i do not feel like it uh you know is it, it feels like the same the same thing again and again. They're they're quite different and compelling. I'm I'm really interested in this idea of community that you were just talking about. Um and I was wondering how how you bring that into your theater practice and also if you see any connections between that and uh and tabletop role playing games, which I know you've also been involved in for for a while now, right? Yeah. Um I mean, I think, I mean, it's all, it's all community. Like it really is. I think if the pandemic taught me anything, it's as much as I'm an introvert, I just, I mean, I really just, you know, want to hug. Like that's really um, what it's about. Yeah. I think that for me, making theater has always been, making theater has always been about community and, and specifically what I find very generative and, and really rewarding as a theater practitioner is teaching. And I find that teaching and community and tabletop RGBs, uh, t- tabletop RPGs all sort of connect for me in a very similar way. I have found the most rewarding experiences, uh, building communities within, uh, within theater, theater classrooms, um, and, and how that is tied to how I, I try to build community within a TTRPG space, I think is so linked. Um, and then hopefully that all translates to how we collaborate inside a rehearsal room, uh, which I think might've all been word salad, but that is definitely how I see things coming together. No, yeah. I, I don't think that's word salad at all. I, that's, you know, I, I see those things as being very tied as well, which is why I want to ask. I'm always curious if other people see those those connections. Changing tack slightly, um, I and and on a like less philosophical note, I did want to ask. So you've you've run Bluebeard's Bride for us, um, and now are running Brindlewood Bay, and I just wanted to ask how you got into tabletop role playing games and whether you have any any favorites, because I know you. I I've picked up that you have gotten to sort of experiment with a bunch of different ones, it sounds like. 
So I'm honestly like, I feel way newer to this than, than, um, than a lot of other people, especially this is, I think, especially in this group that we're playing with, I'm like, Oh, I feel like I haven't been, I haven't been doing this as long as some of you, but, um, I think I first played D and D when I was in high school with my, and my sisters and I all remember this differently. I'm just going to say that, um, <laughs> my father wanted us to play. I remember my older sister DMing. She remembers me DMing and my father before he died said that, um, neither of us DMed and that we didn't, there was no DM. So like, who knows who, what happened at this game? Fascinating. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, so that was like the first time we ever played and I really loved it, but then I was in high school and I was a nerd and I didn't have, I didn't have nerd friends that were nerd in that way. They were different kind of nerds. So I didn't actually end up playing um, any other tabletop RPGs until college. And the aforementioned Margot Connolly, um, she really wanted to play Monster Hearts. And mm. I really wanted to play Monster Hearts too, because she started talking to me about it. And I was just like, this sounds great. And so the first time that I ever played a TTRPG with Margot Connolly and, um, and she DM'd or whatever it's called for Monster Hearts, which was great because it was just, you know, everybody in our playwriting cohort wanting to grope each other. But as monsters um i of course played <laughs> played the chosen the buffy um stand-in which felt very correct to me um <laughs> and uh it was very it was really great uh and then from that from those groups my friend charles green who's another playwright who was in the program he started to dm very very different games for us um and i became really fascinated with this idea of what dming looked like uh and and became a dungeon master sort of because I during especially like right before the the pandemic so before everybody moved online uh, we had our group online but then the group online made it even easier and so that was that was sort of where I cut my teeth on it but as you all have talked about in the podcast many times and how I also agree I just felt like I don't like Dungeons and Dragons I do like Dungeons and Dragons quite a bit but it's not my favorite <laughs> my favorite are the ones that are a little bit more fun storytelling wise um, Bluebeard's Bride, when Percy reached out to me about doing that, I was blown away. I was like, I obviously I want to run this game. Like this is this is my type of of thing that I want to do. And I've now run it a few times mm. since the podcast. And I love that game so much. But I think the favorite one that my group does um is uh that we've ever done is called Sleepaway Camp, which is Jay Dragon's um no, uh -huh. no Dice No Masters game, which is fantastic. Um and like we still talk about that game. And part of the reason we talk about that game is that my biggest problem as a DM and what I'm very nervous with, which I will divulge to you and your listeners before we actually listen to me, hopefully do. do this, is I've actually never ended a game <laughs> except for Bluebeard's Bride and Sleepaway Camp. Uh -huh. my, my specialty is to keep a story going. You know, you just keep like adding little details. This is why we never finish a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons because you can just keep going and going indefinitely. And even though we've played um, Brundlewood, Brundlewood Bay with my group a few times, we were in no rush. So I was in no rush to get to anything. And I was like, if we ever get to the void mystery, you know, who cares? Um, this will be, this game of Brundlewood Bay will probably be the, the, the only time I will have concluded a game outside of uh, Bluebeard's Bride um, and, uh, and Sleepaway Camp. So, yeah. Yeah, a little nervous for that. Going to have to try. That's why I was like, I, I was talking to you a lot about scheduling. Because I was like, I think I'm going to need like some parameters to keep this in check. Totally. Yeah. Well, and we really wanted, I will, I will just say from a sort of producer standpoint, we're super excited to 
give you and the cast kind of as much space as we can to explore that because that's one of the things we find so exciting about um about Brindlewood Bay. Uh I will also a little behind the scenes thing. I'm curious with Sleepaway, did you play that online as well? We did. And one okay. of the things that we have talked about is like it would be way better to do it in person because we, yeah, it was really difficult to do online. I, I can't. So that I was the behind the scenes thing is that sleep away is a game that on the podcast, we've been very interested in doing and haven't partly because we're like, how do we do it online? Like if feel doing it in person feels so much a part of its uh, ethos that we were like, we just don't know if we we're like going to do it justice in a sort of performance <laughs> mode online. We had a very affecting, like, and I do mean affecting game, uh, mm, but good. we definitely cut out parts of it. We tried to use like an online Google corkboard thing uh -huh. to draw the stuff and it worked to a certain extent, but in terms of the visceral nature of like, now the lake is gone, now this is gone, now these people are gone and they're removed from like this thing that you've created. We just don't think it has the same effect. So we keep talking about when we have, uh, when we have all of our schedules will just magically align and we'll be able to go, um, uh, to the Pacific Northwest for a week and play nothing but games uh, at like, you know, a secluded cabin in the woods, then we will play rounds and rounds of sleepaway camp with our cork boards and yarn building fun little murder boards. Um, because that's what that game wants you to do. Uh, but yeah, we we had a great time, but you have to really like, you have to figure out ways around it um, because it just, yeah, it will, it's hard to play online. It wants to be in person. Totally. Yeah. And that, yeah. And there are some games that are just like that, that want that physical co-presence or want physical tools in that way. And it is it's 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 a challenge for us because that's really compelling and also hard for us to do in our in our setup. Uh, well, and what's so wonderful and like, I mean, this goes to my anxiety about ending things in general. So like I, I have a huge rant about like how so I get really mad when when like, for instance, TV shows have like some sort of complaint about endings like, oh, aren't stories just so hard and endings are so hard. Like the, the most recent um, thing that I watched was Midnight Society or Midnight Club, whatever they called it on um, uh -huh. Netflix. And the last episode was just about how hard endings are. And I was like, yeah, no shit. Like that's like that's the whole thing. Um, and I talk about this with my playwriting students all the time. But what was great about Sleepaway was that the mechanics for ending the game are so clear because you're just slowly ripping down the world. And so, of course, it's going to end. Same thing with Brendlewood or uh, with Bluebeard's Bride, right? It comes to a conclusion because they have to like come to a decision about what this guy has done. And then there's a preset how it's going to go. Brendlewood Bay is very exciting, but it's very nerve wracking because I've never ended anything that's been open before. It's like, oh, I actually do have to like figure out some things. I don't have to thankfully think of everything because again, this is a collaborative thing, which is what is making me not stressed out about it as much as if it was a play. If it was a play, I'd be like, my fucking God, I have to figure out how to end this thing. But it's not my play. It's our play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, endings are, uh, I, I remember <laughs> I was, I was uh, serving as an evaluator for a like high school playwriting competition one time and i remember writing some note that was like this is a great play blah blah blah. the ending doesn't really make sense but i don't think that we can hold them against them endings are hard like <laughs> just, like like it's just true they suck 
It's like no matter what, like in re in reality, they suck for different reasons, but also in artistic life, it's you know, it's hard and it's hard to like find the right uh thing. But I'm I'm very excited to see what you all come up with um for Brindlewood Bay. Uh, and I, I, I have I want a good group of collaborators, so hopefully it will all work out very well. <laughs> It's it's been very exciting. I was listening back to the um the session zero that you all had uh earlier today and it was it's just such a delightful group. Um I'm very excited. Uh I did want to ask what your inspirations are for the mysteries that you've been setting up, I think is probably the better term than writing in the way you might for like a D&D &D or another sort of more planning heavy style game but yeah what what sort of inspirations are you drawing on for Brindlewood Bay um I'm very excited the the first mystery that that I quote unquote wrote which what I love about the mechanics of this game is that it, you can be very open right with what mm -hmm. you're doing so that one is more or less just like okay I know that I want to have a certain number of characters and I also want us to explore the town because originally I was going to do like a bottle mystery in this in the store but I was like no we have to get outside we have to like see that there's a world out here and so uh, it was also sort of based a little bit on I did run dad overboard for my regular gaming group. And I had some uh -huh. it was difficult. What I what I've discovered with Brenda Bay actually is that it feels a lot harder to run one of their games, one of the one of the mysteries they have written for you, because you almost like you almost don't want to perform anything like it, it makes it very difficult to like it, it. It's almost like for my group anyway, working with the ones that were already there, they were it felt it felt more like something that they that they couldn't explore as much so mm. the inspirations that i am now taking from it especially because we are so rooted in the 90s and without giving too much away is very much into like a 90s horror aesthetic um and i mean i love murder she wrote i grew up watching murder she wrote i'm a big fan and i definitely was watching a lot of murder she wrote last year and while i was writing ghost in the graveyard because it's one of my favorite things um I'm really excited for uh, the mystery that 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 will happen next, which will take place at a community theater, which I've already sort of laid the groundwork for um, because we did meet Mabel and uh, she did talk about uh, what what is it called? What is it called? A dramaturg? Um, <laughs> so like I'm excited for those things. So so for me, like a lot of it is coming from just like my own. I mean, I'm I'm as I already said, I'm not a, I'm not a fresh daisy. Um, I grew up in the 90s. So like I have I already have a lot of inspiration and I've been rewatching Dawson's Creek for fun um, because it makes no sense. So like I I'm really excited for like for for those sorts of inspirations to come in. Um, but mysteries in general are just really are delightful. Uh, so I love some Agatha Christie and um, my my favorite part of Brindlewood Bay is that you don't actually have to know anything about who did what. You just have to have a really long list of clues and that's it. <laughs> And then, as they even said, it's really hard to put those clues together. And it's like, yeah, it is. Go for it. I don't have to do anything. I have this theory that I'm really excited to see whether it proves true or not, that that's actually this. The strength of it is like you can get a much more bizarre sort of elaborate murder mystery by having all these clues and then having the sort of brain trust of all of the players plus the keeper being like, okay, how could these all fit together will like give you a much more uh sort of 
ridiculous, elaborate, you know, that kind of like, uh, uh, almost. I don't want to say a parody, but almost a like exaggerated version of the like, ah, yes, there were three people, but two of them were doing this unrelated, different crime, but one of them dressed up as the third person who actually did the crime. Like, I, I, I'm excited to see how that system kind of feeds into the zany, like elaborateness of the mysteries. Well, and definitely. I mean, Jason Cordova's, uh, Cordova also, I think, leans into that by calling it the dark conspiracy. Already when you call something conspiracy, I think of it having like 30 layers to it and like you don't know who's involved. And so I, the, the real delight of this actually is that I know I'm introducing characters and I have no idea where their loyalties lie on any. Thing. And so by the uh -huh. time we actually get to the end, half of these people that we've introduced, some of which like our players have made up, they could become like the big pillars of whatever this dark mystery is, which is highly delightful. Um, and one of the reasons that I like this game so much is because it's so I, to go back to this idea of community and collaboration, like it's all tied mm -hmm. into that. It's really fun. Yeah, it's been really delightful to watch. I know we're. Uh... Still, when we're recording this, we're in kind of early days in terms of playing through. But I did want to ask, has there been anything in the in the session zero or in the gameplay so far that has really uh, surprised or shocked or delighted you that you weren't expecting? I should have expected it. But I, I'm always, always really, really surprised when people, uh, when players want to flirt with me um, because <laughs> I'm... I'm the kind of person who loves to make every single NPC a sex pot, like absolutely 100%. Uh -huh. But my gaming group is so used to it that they barely react anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was so shocked, I think, during our first session when like I, I have a character whose name I'm going to blank on right now. And I just had him start to flirt with uh, with whomever. And then at the end of session, they were like, I was sad he didn't flirt with me. I was, I was like... It was starting with all of you. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was, I will absolutely make sure he flows with all of you. You all want it. Yes. You all want to be hit on. We got this. We got this. I can make this happen. Um, I just don't know where all's comfort level is. And my group is just so used to me doing it every single time. <laughs> that and I, that and I at all. I love, I love the idea that you've, you've somehow, you've like raised your group's tolerance of this to the point where it just does it. It's like, ah, yes, everyone is, Everyone is smoking hot and deeply flirtatious, and that's just that's just what the world is, regardless of what we're playing or where we are. I love that. I'm very typical. Again, going back to the thirst of of don't dead podcast inside. <laughs> just the same things. Just the same things. I'm just like a very I'm a very very into the erotic of performance. Um, I do make my students read Audrey Lord, so like we just go from there. Absolutely, and listen, I can't. Uh, I, I can't I can't argue with you about John Bernthal. That that's his name, right? I got the actor's name right. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that man is so hot. How? How? I don't understand. He's so very, hot. Very hot and very hot in that role specifically, in a weird way, because he's like not a nice guy. No. <laughs> he's not. He's like he's the definition of the 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 jock jackass that you don't want to and yet just charming she's talking about banging women and how women like women don't know how to turn on lights and you're just like okay <laughs> sure say it slower <laughs> yeah absolutely
I think I, I I would like to keep talking to you about The Walking Dead forever, particularly because I, I'm very interested in your and Marco's uh, uh, takes on Rick Grimes, who I will say when I was watching The Walking Dead, I was like, I want this show to be about literally every other character except Rick. I just I like he was somehow to me just obnoxious and sort of boring at the same time where I was like, I just can't with this guy. I don't know what it is, but I, I'm very excited to, to keep listening and hear, uh, your, your, you, you two explore that character. Uh, we talk about him, not as much as other characters, but we do talk about him when he's looking very roughed up because Margo likes that. And as do I. <laughs> Fair enough. And there's a lot of that, as I yes. recall, from yes, The Walking yeah. Dead. So yeah, he, he they don't take it easy on him. He gets wrapped yeah. up a lot. Well, it's been an absolute delight uh having you uh be our keeper for Brindlewood Bay and talking with you tonight. Uh thank you, Meeks. Is there anything you have uh going on or coming up that our listeners should know about? Uh and where can people follow your work? Yes. So coming up, uh, by the time this comes out, uh, I will I will definitely be in Boston um, workshopping a lovely play um, by Seymukta uh, Vongsai. Uh, her new, uh, this will be at Emerson College because she's a Mellon, uh, a Mellon recipient for playwriting. So I will be there. I think it will be a public viewing, but I'm not sure. Um, and then I have a workshop coming up at, in Swanee in February for a new play called Gifts from God. Um, and if you want dates on any of those things, because God knows I don't have those right now, um, <laughs> you can follow me uh, on the ever declining Twitter. That is uh, uh, Meek, C-M-E-A-K. I always have to think about it uh, because I am dyslexic and I will flip those around. Um, so even though Twitter is declining, I'm still quite on Twitter. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm at C Meeks Meeker. Uh, so my full name in there, but my nickname in the middle. Those are the places that you can find me or on New Play Exchange if you're feeling, you know, reedy. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, tune in next week to hear the continuation of our ongoing Brindlewood Bay campaign. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drominers. Nerds.